The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange, the conversation with people of interest in business and finance around the world. I'm Christopher Thompson, Breaking Views columnist in Europe, and my guest today is a man who for nearly a decade was voted the most admired Swedish businessman. I'm talking about Per Ullenhammer, most famously the longtime CEO of carmaker Volvo and someone who brought environmental, social and corporate governance change to business long before ESG turned into a fashionable acronym. We will be talking about whether the pandemic accelerates or hinders the transition to stakeholder capitalism, his new book, as well as Sweden's unique response to the COVID-19 outbreak. But first, perhaps even more interesting, Pia, you recently became a father again at the grand old age of 81. Is that? Sounds... <laughs> That's a, absolutely correct. <laughs> That sounds absolutely exhausting. <laughs> well, it is a bit exhausting, but it's also, it's my fifth child and, and uh, she, she's wonderful. I, I must ask then, given that you've done a lot in, in, in pioneering ESG concerns, how, do, how does becoming a father in your 80s influence your outlook in that area, having, watching a young child grow up again from a baby to a toddler and so forth? Well, I, I, I think it's, you know, every experience or the experience for every child I've had for uh, up till now and now this is the fifth one. Uh, it's always different, always different. And of course, I'm much older and she is a young girl. She's only four and a half. So uh, it's a new experience in one sense. And uh, uh, I think every child is a new adventure. Absolutely. Do you think? Do you think it? Do you, do you think it heightens your concern for, you know, issues such as the environment, stakeholder capitalism that you've been speaking out about for for many decades? Well, I think that that is exactly as you say something that I have been engaged in completely since I was young. Yes, because you 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 addressed the first UN conference on the environment back in the nineteen seventies, didn't you? And you also on the kind of social side of the ESG equation, you di- you're one of the first companies where you were at Volvo to divest from apartheid South Africa. Um, yes. in, that, in that sense, what does kind of ESG or what does stakeholder capitalism, it, it gets criticized for being quite a vague term, but what does it mean for you specifically? Well, <laughs> well I've never, uh, I've seen that term much later in my life than, than when I started. I think it's a fairly natural way of managing a business. And uh, I, I thought so uh, even before I started at Volvo, because I was always asking myself, what, 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 what is the world of, of uh, shareholder companies? And uh, of course, I, <laughs> theoretically, I, I knew it exactly. But then in real life, I was tested very early. And uh, it was natural for me to care for the people, that the people that worked in a company, they were the most uh, vital resource and they had to be looked after. They had to be also understand the discipline and, and the philosophy of the company. So I started that very early. And what was that test that you refer to? Well, it was not. It was not a test. It was just a, a, 
a young man's uh, experience, if I had any, but what I had uh, taught me that this is what I wanted to do when, and, I mean, when, when I was head of a company. I mean, is that in the sense that you think there's an inevitable trade-off between kind of doing good in, in inverted commas and, and making money or that, you know, doing good over the long term will result in you making, making more money in any case? Well, I think that, uh, I think it's a combination of both. Uh, I think it was, for me, it was a natural thing because when I came to my first big job on, in an insurance company, uh, I was then only there less than two years. And then I was recruited to Volvo and I couldn't resist uh, to, to start with a, with a manufacturing company, which I'd always thought that that would be very interesting. So uh, I came to Volvo and uh, the first thing almost I did was to get to know the classes of people working in a, in a, in a, in a large industry. And we were not that big at the time. It was a medium-sized company by any standards. But uh, I, I, I started to look at the blue-collar workers because that was really the core of the company and uh, that I never gave up. And who were these? These were the people actually on the production lines putting the cars together. Yes, yes, blue collar worker. Yes, yes. And I mean, obviously car makers, I mean, eventually after you had built Volvo up, it got sold to Ford Autos eventually, didn't they? Yes. And then it yes. was Ford then sold it at quite a big markdown to uh, a Chinese car company. Exactly, and, and, and I was, I, I, that happened two years after I'd left. I'd been almost 24 years with Volvo, and then I left and uh, did other things. And uh, in the meantime, or two years after I left, uh, they sold it to Ford, and then Ford sold it to the Chinese. You're right. And you were quite, you were, you've been quite critical of that deal, kind of. That, since you left, very, is, that, is that fair to say? Very critical, very critical, because uh, I thought that Volvo was uh, an amazing company and uh, I tried to manage it as well as I could. And of course, we grew uh, almost 20 fold uh, during my years. And I thought we had a great company and good people and good staff. And uh, I was very upset when they sold the car division or the car company because I, we, 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 I made everything. You No. Well, 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 what we had was cars, trucks, aviation, space, and uh, uh, marine. Yes. Yes, but I think that I think the trucks the trucks company is still kept in Sweden, isn't it? That bit wasn't sold. That, exactly, that yes. is still kept in Sweden. Yes, yes, that's interesting. And I I, I started that group with, with with heavy trucks, and and started that in 1972, which was one year after I had joined the company, and then it grew into number two in the world in heavy trucks. Yes. And, and, and of course, that I, I seem to, I'm casting my mind back now, but when you left Volvo, which was a big deal at the time, not just in Sweden, but internationally, 
there yes. was there was a rumor or maybe it was stronger than that that you wanted to one of the reasons for your departure was because you you were thinking of uh, combining with Francis Renault is that yes is there, is there any, so so I mean now, now that we're seeing consolidation in the European car market uh, between Fiat Chrysler uh, and and Peugeot uh, Renault's arguably been the one car company who who, who got left out of that deal um, I mean, I mean, arguably, would you argue that you were right? I mean, you guys should have gotten together back then. Well, the the uh, it was a change of leadership at at Renault uh, during the last two years that I was at Volvo, and um, the the man who, who who was the head of the of Renault at the time and with whom I negotiated, I had a good relationship. He also. I invited him through my uh, shareholders to be a member of the Volvo's board. So, so it, it was very close because he thought that it would be a great combination between Renault and Volvo. And um, then he resigned because he, he had got to the age where he couldn't stay longer. And, and, and his successor then was a totally different person. And that didn't that didn't work well, so th nothing happened, and we were very far ahead to have a joint company where Volvo would have the lion's share. Yes, yes, and and of course, COVID has like it's dealt blows to many industries, but the car industry in Europe in particular. Uh, yes, do you think? I mean, we're. We're likely. Do you think we're likely to see more consolidation in the car industry, just not not just in Europe but globally? Well, I think so, but I, I think that in, in in Japan, I think the the fight is over. I think it's 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 the the uh, uh, the people who do the the, the Lexus and, and uh, they are the ones that will survive. And I think that Nissan is uh, a nowadays a second class. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that publicly, but I think they are a weak number two. And, and, and otherwise, there is a consolidation going on throughout the industry. And I think that the recession that we've seen now the last six to nine months uh, will take its toll. So I think its consolidation will probably continue. Bringing it back to, to issues around ESG, You've been quite critical of other CEOs, uh, particularly over the last decade or so, and, and but particularly those in America. In one of the articles you wrote recently, uh, you described corporate America as arguably more swollen and self-serving than it has ever been. What did you mean by that? I meant by that that uh, it is less than it is less than one percent that is. You know, concentration of power within the uh, within the, the the shareholding companies in in the United States less than one percent used to be much more, and now this less than one percent probably covers about sixty percent of the whole industry or the whole activity in the United States. So it's an enormous concentration of power, and I think that has not served the company as well, hasn't served the, the industry well, 
hasn't served the shareholders well. So I think it's, 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 it's a very bizarre concentration in the United States and much bigger concentration than anywhere else in the world. And yet, and yet I, guess, I guess one riposte that, that, that corporate Americans could make is, is you look at the equity valuations given to, given to U.S. companies generally on U.S. stock markets versus those in Europe and, 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 and the gulf just seems to grow wider. Yes. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I, I, th I, think, I, I think that has its negative sides as well. And, and uh, the concentration is always, I think, anywhere in the world, dangerous. And when you have this amount of value in one country, which is the richest in the world, it is less than 1% of the people who own it or who, who, who drive it. Yes, I mean you've been particularly critical as well of 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 CEO pay. You you famously said when you left Volvo after many decades and and, and growing it into a into a kind of you know a, a global brand to be reckoned with, um, you know you did not receive a golden parachute, um, and you say you don't believe in golden parachutes. What irks you so much about about you know as CEOs would argue simply rewarding them for the success? That they bring to shareholders, or, 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 or the other argument that you know it's a it's a free market, and 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 talent comes at a cost. Yes, talent comes at a at a cost. That's absolutely right. But on the other hand, if you if you look at the average uh, lifetime, if you wish, uh, in in the United States for for a, a chief executive officer, it is now down to about five years. And if you look at the cycle of a real industry, manufacturing industry or any industry, uh, uh, five years is a very short time to serve as a head of a large company or even smaller company. So I, I, I think that has gone so far that, and then when, when, when they leave after say five years average, it seems to be now, uh, the, the, they get a, a big golden handshake. For what? If they haven't succeeded very well, why should they have anything? Right, uh, right. They, they could have a pension, but they get very large amounts. And when they have to fire a company the US way, uh, uh, they get an enormous sum of money. Yeah. You know, something that, that ordinary people would say, well, this is a fortune for a lifetime. Do they deserve it? And, and I think that, no, they don't deserve it. They don't yes. deserve it. I mean, it's, I guess, I guess, you know, again, playing devil's advocate, the insecurity of the job or, or, or the relatively short average tenure kind of in, in, incurs a cost in itself. I mean, they become rather like football managers in Europe who, are, who also have <laughs> famously short, short lifespans uh, demand enormous <laughs> enormous remuneration to compensate for the job insecurity that argument doesn't convince you though no it doesn't convince me because i don't think there's any insecurity in the in the corporate life of of the united states i think that everything is is magnified everything is blown up and i don't think that anyone deserves the type of uh, you know, salaries or remuneration that uh, U.S. Uh, executives uh, get. 
and yes. and it sounds that it sounds as if I'm jealous. I'm not jealous. I'm just surprised. I don't think they're worth it. Yes. Well, let, let me let me put to you the big question then: Is yep. the pandemic going to change things in terms of in terms? I mean, people talk about ESG concerns and obviously executive pay and and the broader issue of inequality uh, would fall within that. Is is COVID nineteen? Is that going to accelerate? A transition for the better, or, or or potentially it will it will it will hinder things as the as the strong get stronger. Well, that that that's a question that uh, well I haven't devoted all much all that much time to it, but but I, I think it's it's the first time in what one hundred years, one century, that we have had a pandemic like this one. And, and, and I think it's very hard to, to imagine what will happen afterwards. And then I happen to think or believe that the second wave that the um, scientists have talked about uh, is, is coming. And, and, and then I think that is another shock to most of the world because now, for example, in the United States, everything seems to go as it used to do, and still the the infections the infections for 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 the coronavirus is, is growing rapidly in the United States. Yes, staying staying on the subject of the plague. Um, what's interesting, you're 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 one of the most famous Swedish businessmen of your of your generation. And, and indeed, as I, as I said in my intro, one of the most admired, you were voted one of the most admired Swedes for many years. Uh, I took that from, from the foreword to your, to your forthcoming book, Character is Destiny. Sweden's approach to the pandemic has been very unique, hasn't it? I mean, you're in, you're in Canada at the moment, right? Not, not Sweden, yes. as I understand it. So yes. can, you, can you just explain to listeners, how has Sweden been allowed to, to get away with not imposing a lockdown while the rest of the world seems to disagree? Well, Sweden is a country that has, uh, from the early 19th century, when the Frenchman, uh, a, a not successful general in the French army in the early 19th century, uh, that was the person, a field marshal who was not the best among the marshals of Napoleon Bonaparte. He was the one who was recruited as a king to Sweden. And um, I must say that looking back, I think that was a big mistake. Sweden was known to be poor, courageous, very good in the both, both at home and in, in uh, fighting other nations. <laughs> and uh, I was, uh, my, my family was participating in the biggest war between Sweden and any foreign country in 1659 to 60. And uh, my ancestors on my father's side were, uh, Became, became noble family uh, just after the, after the last war that Sweden fought. And the father died 
and he had two sons. One of the sons died, and the son who remained was was uh, uh, knighted, and that's how we got our name, Yulenhama, which means golden axe. But but anyway, and after that, Sweden has become a very peace-loving, if that is a term that is correct, yeah. or rather wishing to have peace until after World War II, where we never participated. So I think that Sweden has been a fairly weak leadership from the marshal, French marshal who came to Sweden, and that Sweden has been fairly shy and modest apart from saying how good they are <laughs> or we are. <laughs> so so I, I think that Sweden has been a fairly weak power since the early 19th century. But it's, but it's, I, I guess, I guess what's remarkable is that it seems to have this incredible uh, level of internal cohesion, uh, which, yes. which basically uh, people are relaxed enough or, or, or perhaps conformist enough that, that the government doesn't merely has to issue a series of recommendations uh, in order for people to, you know, generally stay at home and observe social distancing without having to kind of, you know, enforce through coercion a, a, a general economic lockdown. I think this is extremely well phrased by you. Uh, and, and I admire you for that because you are absolutely right. Uh, one has been, uh, well, compassionate, very loyal to one's country. And uh, one has a culture that uh, should, should have been tested more by circumstances in the world than, than it has. So, for example, in the in World War II, Sweden helped the Nazis to march through the south of Sweden to invade Norway. And uh, Sweden accepted that, which I will never forgive them. And my father was of exactly the same view that we, 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 we lost, we lost our courage and independence in the early 19th century. So is this, is this a way of asserting, in a sense, Swedish, Swedish independence, Sweden's way of doing things, Sweden's exceptionalism? Well, uh, I, I think that started in the, uh, as I said, early 19th century with a French uh, marshal who was, uh, as Napoleon said, the, the least uh, courageous uh, marshal that he had in his army. And, and do, you, do you think Sweden's Irish <laughs> approach, is it, is, it, is it a success or, or, or a failure? Or I, I, I think it, no, well, I think it, is, it has been a success in the sense that it was one of the poorest countries in Europe uh, throughout the 19th century and then became one of the most affluent in the 20th century yeah. and, and all, all, also in the 21st century. But I have less, I have less pride in my home country than I'd ever had before. Because, because of what's happened during the pandemic? No, not only the pandemic, but, but uh, World War II, for example. Of course. Uh, uh, we, 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 we let the, the Nazis march through the southwest of Sweden. 
And uh, I, I think that was a scandal, and I still think so. And uh, the, the royal family at the time, uh, there was one king who was uh, Anglo-Saxon in the sense that he married, he, he, he married a, 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 an English uh, uh, lady, uh, and uh, she became the queen. And then uh, she, she passed away, and um, there was another English lady who became the queen. And apart from that, the uh, Sweden has been without, I would say, guts or courage or, or, or stamina uh, during the best part of the 20th century. And I mean, let's, I mean that, that takes us on to the, to the title of your book, Character is Destiny. Yeah. Yes. Who the, when you when you when you scan after a long life in, in 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 industry and indeed you you were involved in Swedish politics as well. Um, who are the who are the big characters on the world stage today that 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 command your respect? Well, I think that the the uh, the the Americans who who saved Europe after all, together with Churchill and and, and uh, others. I think that uh, I, I, I think that the, the courage of the Swedes has declined, uh, as I said, since since the Bernadotte came to to become the king of Sweden. Otherwise, I think that you know I have I think that Sweden has many virtues, but uh, the character and the the uh, the the firmness in which it has been managed is not great it's 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 i mean for the size of the country it it has and it, and it's obviously it's a country that's very well known for having you know quite high taxes uh a, a kind of quite a lot of social uniformity which which we've discussed and yet it still comes out with this incredible number of of entrepreneurial really large uh, companies, especially latterly tech companies, but not only tech, uh, music, Spotify, finance, uh, obviously IKEA. Um, what's 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 unique in the in the culture of Sweden that, that you know allows allows them to have you know high taxes on one hand, but also a lot of a lot of enterprise on the other. Well, that, 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 that's a very, very interesting question. I, I'm, 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 I'm not sure I can answer it, but my view is that, yes, there is quite a lot of, of, of courage and uh, uh, energy in, in, in the Swedish society. And, and that, has, that has served the, the corporate uh, Sweden very well. Uh, but also, uh, lately, the last 20, 30 years, uh, the biggest group, ownership group in Sweden, uh, have sold quite a lot of their companies uh, to others. For example, Scania, which was uh, one of the big truck makers in Sweden, has been sold to Germany. And, uh, and, and, and other companies as well have have gone from Sweden to somewhere else. So I, I think there's there there's been almost a lack of uh, guts and courage lately, and I think that has to do with the whole 19th century, uh, both during the wartime and 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 after after the war. Sweden was very fortunate in having an untouched economy. 
because it had not been invaded by anyone in the world uh, until, uh, well, or never, never invaded. And what do you think, finally, what do you think the business world is going to follow? If you, if you have two models, one being uh, the American brand of kind of hyper-capitalism or, or, or the Swedish model kind of combining a uh, strong social safety net with, with entrepreneurialism, Post, post-COVID-19, which, which do you think the world will gravitate more to? More towards America or more <laughs> well, towards the Swedish model? Well, I think that the world should gravitate more to uh, minding the, the people they employ and not hire and fire all the time, which they do in the United States. I mean, I think they are the, 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 the capitalist model here that they have no, no real consideration for their employees. And uh, in Europe, it's, it's different. Uh, throughout Europe, it's different. More, more concern for the employees. And, and I've had my concern for the employees because I think that if you don't have people who like your company and who can work in, in, in according to principles that the company has, then you will have poorer products and poorer future. Now, that is hard to convince anyone of because the way they do it in the United States has been good for the United States, has been partly good for the world, but um, it, it is brutal. And I think that Europe at large has much more concern for the people they, they serve and the people who, who are their employees. And that is a better model over time. Hey, Yulan Hammer, thank you very much for speaking to me. And thank you to you for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner. Be sure to go to breakingviews.com to get your daily financial commentary fix, including podcasts such as The Exchange and Newsroom. I'm Christopher Thompson here in London. Goodbye.